All segments of the agriculture industry have been impacted in some way by COVID-19, from supply chain disruptions to altered consumption patterns, say eating at home instead of eating at restaurants, for example. The animal protein segments have been particularly hard hit with reduced slaughter capacity driving down prices at the farm level, despite farmers seeing higher prices at the retail space. Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast, taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we hear from Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Lane spoke with Feedstuff's policy editor, Jackie Fatka, about the unique challenges facing the nation's farmers, ranchers, and cattle raisers, including the organization's concerns with some of the current government stimulus programs like CFAP. While some estimates project government assistance as high as 36% of total farm income this year, to many it feels as though more can be done. Lane outlined some of the things NCBA is asking of Congress and the U.S. Department of Agriculture to help bring some additional relief to farm country. And Lane also discusses the challenges of asking for more in an election year and then figuring out how to pay for it all. With more on that story, here's Feedstuff's editor, Jackie Fatka. We've had some obvious dramatic impacts from COVID-19 and the cattle industry specifically is one of the big recipients of the coronavirus food assistance program, CFAP. Obviously, though, there's still some changes that we're hoping to maybe see uh, in that. Maybe overview what we did see with CFAP payments for beef producers and some of the changes you guys are, are working towards moving ahead. It's been an interesting process for us because the cattle industry has not historically asked for this kind of financial support uh, or stimulus in these kinds of crises in the past. The fact that we did this time, the fact that we had state affiliates from across the country asking us to engage in this speaks to just how severe the impact has been from the coronavirus shutdown to, to the cattle industry. We, we did engage aggressively on this. We talked through what the industry needed with Capitol Hill, and we were happy to see that $9.5 billion set aside for uh, uh, for cattle producers and uh, dairy and, and specialty crops, as well as that replenishment of $14 billion to the CCC, the Commodity Credit Corporation, uh, that was included. You know, we had originally asked for a raise in that to uh, from 30 billion to 50 billion for the borrowing authority. What we got instead was this kind of one-two punch, and the the subsequent CFAP plan that that has gone through the White House and is now out uh, for producer signups. You know, is definitely getting some checks out to the country to producers that need them, but. You know, to your point, we we still do have some concerns. The April fifteenth date that that it serves as the uh, cutoff for those Part One payments on actual losses is really arbitrary in our opinion. That's something we voiced concern about when it leaked out as a rumor before this plan was finalized. Uh, it's something we've continued to stress that we have concerns with. Those conversations are ongoing about possible solutions to that. You know, the Part Two payments also have have some issues, specifically just the 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 lower uh, amount of those payments, that lower percentage of the damage estimate means that our, our cow-calf and stalker operators are only getting about $33 a head or 66 a pair for their inventory through May 15th. And we know from the damage estimates that we had an economic team put together of $13.6 billion that the real economic impact for those producers is far greater 
uh, from this crisis. And not only that, but according to our report, that estimate, that damage is going to continue to increase into 2021 if we don't get enough aid out to the country now to mitigate it. So, you know, we, we, we do have a situation where we're we're looking at those checks that are going out. We're looking at where producers are coming up the shortest and trying to make sure that any subsequent aid uh, is really targeted at shoring up those areas where they didn't get enough out of this package. We know we're not the only industry that's in this place. Most other commodities that are in this area uh, have similar concerns. Nobody likes the April 15th date, and, and we've yet to hear uh, any explanation for for a rationalization for why they picked April 15th that, that makes any sense. Um, so we, we feel like because of that, there's some room to, uh, to, to discuss. We were, we were pleased with the HEROES Act, which is sort of the next possible round of coronavirus aid that the House passed a few weeks back. That included an additional $16 billion for the CFAP program, as well as an extension of those Part 1 loss payments through the end of the second quarter, which uh, obviously would include losses up till today. You know, that would definitely be progress as far as making sure that people are, are, are getting the kind of support that they need to, to weather this. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's also positive that finally we're starting to see an uptick in processing capacity and a little bit of a recovery on that front. So hopefully once we get done with this fine tuning what's been put together in CFAP, we might be starting to move out of the woods here. You know, you'd mentioned the HEROES Act and the additional $16 billion for the CCC that the House version offered. Obviously, a lot of people said that was dead on arrival in the Senate. But undoubtedly, if, if we were asking for 30 to $50 billion to replenish the CCC, I have seen some other groups ask for even more than that now. Uh, what's right. your anticipation? And maybe discuss, too, how agricultural groups are coming together to advocate for additional funds in the CCC to be used at the secretary's discretion to be able to meet the needs of those in rural America as we proceed through the rest of 2020 and possibly into 2021. I think universally, and I don't want to speak for, for any of our sister agricultural organizations representing other commodities, but I think pretty it, it's pretty fair to say most of us liked the livestock title in the HEROES Act. The bill has other problems outside of agriculture, to be sure. A $3 trillion package is, is, is nothing to shake a stick at, particularly after we've already spent $3 trillion in the in the first three packages trying to, to mitigate the effects of this crisis. But there's a lot to like in that bill. It, it showed, I think, that that House Ag Committee uh, members are, are are thinking critically about what the industries need. They've listened to us, um, and that bill goes a long way towards address the livestock title goes a long way towards addressing the industry's concerns. It was passed before the CFAP rule was finalized, and it, it, the language in there keys off of the existing CFAP rule. Given that arbitrary April 15th date and, and some of those payment ratios, we have some concerns there. There's some things we think, would, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we, we need to have adjusted in order for that to really have the maximum effect. But it's it's sure a great opening gambit. And if, if the Hill's going to fight over pieces of that HEROES Act, uh, we, we'd prefer they fight in other areas. I think AG is, is universally feeling like that was a, a, an awfully good opening uh, opening offer from House Democrats. So we'll see how much appetite there is on the Hill for them to truly take that on. I think there's a, a, a definite wait and see attitude shaping up 
particularly as uh, the nation's attention has been turned to some of these other issues. I know we've heard from a lot of, of members that they want to see how that money that's already been put forward makes its way through the system. We're certainly uh, going through some of that analysis as well in fine-tuning our ask for the for the next package. We want to make sure that we're dealing with, with real numbers and accounting for what's been done through the existing CFAP program in what we ask for in the next round. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't rule out additional help for agriculture this year if something else moves. I worry at this point that it's not going to be a fun of whether ag will get more help than, than whether uh, there'll be more COVID action, period. You know, you mentioned, too, that we are starting to see some of the processing capacity come back close to 100%. I know USDA had mentioned this week that I think they're about 95% against uh, for all the meat processing facilities. Uh, obviously, COVID revealed some of the uh, weaknesses in our processing capacity and also that we do have a lot of capacity in the hands of a very few. And so we've got some increased calls for anti antitrust investigations uh, from a lot of your state affiliates, um, attorney generals, and we've even seen some class action suits against meat packers. Talk to me about what NCBA is doing and, and your view on what is going on um, with some of those antitrust allegations. Well, so if you'll recall, we were the first ones to send a letter to the White House asking them to expand this investigation and wrap it up quickly. Um, and, and we had a response from Secretary Purdue within about six hours of sending that letter some months back making that request. So we were pleased to hear that. We've been asking for and waiting for the results of USDA's work since uh, back in the in the winter during the, the fallout from the Holcomb fire. So our ask was focused on, hey, we obviously have some of the same market dynamics at play here. It makes good sense to expand your investigation to include what we're seeing in this coronavirus crisis. But also, we can't afford as an industry to wait forever for the results of this thing. We, we need to see what's been found here, what we're dealing with, so that we as an industry can start to make some decisions about what action we need to take uh, to correct it, to make sure that our producers, who I don't think there's any argument, are producing the highest quality cattle in the world, are receiving fair value for those cattle uh, at the sale barn, uh, given the fact that we know beef is flying off the shelves. Uh, we know it's a hot commodity, so to speak. And uh, we need to make sure that value is being received all the way up and down the line. And, and that certainly has not been the case. It's been, I think, probably the headline issue for cattle producers throughout this crisis is the uh, the disparity between what we're seeing at the grocery store and, and what packers are paying at the sale barn. And we've seen some recovery in the last few weeks in, on those numbers, and they're, they're back down again. And I'm sure that roller coaster is not anywhere near finished yet in a, in a mar market as uncertain as this, particularly with the live cattle backlog of over a million that we that we have out on the ground right now. But that's certainly at the top of our list and, and, and has been throughout this crisis. You know, you mentioned timeliness and getting that report out. And I know Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa this week actually wrote a letter to Secretary Purdue asking for something at least within a year of when that fire was. And we're quickly approaching that it's been almost a year come, come August. Have you gotten any indication from USDA on how quickly they might have some of that intel come out from their investigation and because of the COVID, has that actually slowed down the findings from the Holcomb report? We have had confirmation that they have expanded that investigation to include COVID-19, which we're pleased about. We know that obviously we saw subpoenas of the, the four major packers in the last couple of days here. That squares with our understanding of the progress that's being made. Um, and I guess we're glad to see that progress. But, you know, again, we have a live cattle marketing working group that's meeting weekly on this set of issues that could really benefit from the results of, uh, of that investigation, as I know the rest of the industry could as well, as we all try to get our arms around uh, what we need to address and fix here. On one hand, we're glad to see they're making progress 
us uh, on the other, uh, you know, the quicker, the better as we as we try to work our way through this. You mentioned being able to have some more of that information. There has been increased scrutiny on how cattle cattle are priced, the wholesale price difference, uh, and and even some legislation proposed. I mentioned Grassley, but uh, but also again, um, maybe talk about some of the proposals that you've heard out um, with an attempt to increase market transparency. Uh, but maybe some of the unintended consequences that could come if it's if it creates significant changes in how cattle are marketed across the country. The Grassley bill, which is the you know mandated 50% cash trade delivery in 14 days, um, which is sort of an outgrowth of the original 3014 discussion that we heard um, from from some uh, market analysts and others uh, uh, back a few months ago. It's sort of a I think a good good snapshot of where the industry is right now, right? I mean, I, you know, inside our own organization, our state affiliates, we have we have states on both sides of that issue, and that's that's been a central focus of our discussions in our marketing working group. We have the the, the lead proponents of 5014 and the lead opponents of it in the industry all at the same table. And it speaks to to what we're struggling with. You know, in Iowa, they're trading 49% or, or so on cash already. So, you know, that 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 makes sense for, for producers in Iowa. But in Texas, where they're trading 5.5% on cash, that conflicts with our NCBA policy uh, that we've had on the books for quite some time that says that we're opposed to any government mandate that would restrict the way producers are able to market their cattle. So, so that's been our operating principle here is we're looking for solutions that don't dictate to a producer how they can market their cattle. So, you know, we're, we're working through that in, in our working group. There are a lot of ideas floating around right now. And I think that's a that's a healthy thing. Um, and and I'm hopeful that by the time we get to summer business meeting, uh, we're going to have a, enough discussion and enough consensus that we can move some policy that works for everybody, uh, including those states that are that are pushing hard for additional cash or additional price discovery. We've looked at some com- uh, you know concepts like this bid the grid uh, that would create a, a, an accessible grid for, for producers um, where they could benefit from those premiums, because that's really what we're talking about is we want to make sure that producers are getting paid for the, the the quality cattle that they're producing. We want to incentivize that production. Um, we don't want to discourage it. And, and if producers don't feel like that's a risk reward proposition that's worth it for them, they're gonna they're gonna stop doing that. And that's been a real that's been a real driver of our of our increasing beef demand is the fact that we're putting out such a good product in the U.S. Um, so we don't want to we don't want to diminish that. We don't want to diminish producers' choices and how they market. But we really need that price discovery. Um, and we know that's a weak point for us right now. So looking for ways to do that, looking for ways to enhance negotiated trade is really a, a, an issue that we're focused heavily on and uh, are hoping to have some progress made here in the in the coming months. And maybe discuss too, are you hoping to have some of that detailed uh, out for the livestock mandatory reporting discussion as that comes up for renewal later this fall? So so our, our marketing working group uh, came out of our annual convention in San Antonio with directive to to work through some final policy on LMR. So that's part of what that group has been charged with working on um, and is continuing to work on. Obviously, no one predicted we were going to have a, a once-in-a-generation black swan crisis hit the industry uh, in the three months since that meeting or four months since that meeting. But, you know, we, we've got a lot of work to do in a short period of time. And, and as you said, you know, LMR is coming up for reauthorization in the in the early fall. And so that's something we're going to need to be ready for. So we're, we're talking through those issues now and trying to finalize our policy uh, on what we're looking for out of that process. 
um, and you know, obviously looking through what can be improved, what works, and making sure that it that it benefits our producers. Obviously, another big topic that has kind of resurfaced in the last couple of months is country of origin labeling and and whether that should be mandatory or voluntary. What is NCBA's stance on cool? So, I mean, we're opposed to mandatory country of origin labeling, have been for quite some time. Where we have put our focus and where we think there's a lot of value being missed is in this product of the U.S. discussion, particularly, you know, the the use of these product of the U.S. labels uh, without source verification. Uh, We'd like to see that label go away in favor of increased use of of some of these programs that are already in place, like AMS's process verified programs, PVP programs. That's a great tool to allow producers to create value in, in, in what they're producing at a local and regional level because we know that's what consumers are responding to a true marketing label something that really gives the consumer an idea of what it is they're buying and 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 gives them that excitement about a product that maybe was produced locally or down the road from where they live or where they're shopping or from a region that they identify with as being a a region that produces great cattle Uh, and we think those opportunities could really flourish more than they are now if we close that back gate that's open now that allows anything that passes through an FSIS inspected facility to bear that product of the USA logo. You know, we, we know that what, what FSIS is saying is that that product of the USA is a designation of having been produced in the USA, meaning gone through a production facility. We look at that, our cattle producers look at that and say, yeah, I produced that that animal on my operation. In our opinion, it's just not a label that works for our industry. And when we like to see that addressed, those those conversations have been ongoing. FSIS has, has announced, and, and I know Secretary Purdue in testimony uh, late last year uh, made the point that he had, intends to address that uh, this year. We certainly are up for that conversation and and uh, uh, looking forward to it, but no, we we don't believe that mandatory country of origin labeling is the solution to to that issue. It didn't work when we had it before. It was costly to producers, and it, it resulted in a billion dollar retaliatory tariff threat from our trading partners in Canada and Mexico after four losses at the WTO. So we, we need to find a better way to, to to attack that. We did change our policy in San Antonio. We updated policy to affirm that NCBA is supportive of origin labeling voluntarily only when it's source verified. So we don't want people being able to use unverified labels like that product, the USA, on their on their products. So that's, that's where we're putting our focus. We're hopeful that as things kind of start to get back to normal, uh, we'll have some bandwidth to work with USDA on a solution there. What other policy priorities does NCBA have? Obviously, a lot of um, the air in the room has gotten sucked out from Congress anyway, as, as they've looked to COVID and, and some other things that are going on around the country now. But as we move towards the, an election year and um, Congress kind of having a, a different status of whether they're actually on Capitol Hill, what are some other priorities that you guys see as you close out the rest of 2020? We still have a huge regulatory agenda that needs to get wrapped up by the fall. This coronavirus crisis has done us no favors as far as staying on schedule or keeping the administration on schedule uh, to move through that that list of issues, whether it be delisting the, the gray wolf nationwide, uh, reform to the National Environmental Policy Act. Obviously, we're still in court talking about WOTUS. You know, we have these issues that don't go away just because we've been triaging this crisis over the last few months. And, and certainly, we need to make sure that the administration keeps their foot on the gas with moving those priorities forward. We're also looking at some of the conversations shaping up on Capitol Hill. I am starting 
everybody to be concerned that what we're going to see in the fall is a really aggressive, renewed push on the sustainability of agriculture. Uh, you know, we have a fantastic story to tell, and we are victims of a really bad media narrative, not just in the U.S., but globally on that on that topic. And that's something that we've tried to address recently through the Farmers for a Sustainable Future Coalition that we uh, helped start with uh, American Farm Bureau Federation and uh, about 22 other agricultural commodity groups. And the idea there is just to make sure that accurate information is getting out there uh, and that we're not getting tattooed with global production numbers when you know our 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 footprint here is the best in the world. I mean, we're only two percent of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. But if you believe the New York Times or the the Guardian in the U.K., we're you know anywhere from 14, 18 percent to to you know 20, 30, 40 percent, depending on how far off the the reporters are. And that's a real problem for us, and, and something that we need to make sure people are paying attention to. That the real story is is a success story that we should be celebrating rather than targeting agriculture. So that, that's something we're going to be we're going to be really heavily focused on. If I put my crystal ball out in front of me, I, I think it's something that's going to come back up in the fall pretty aggressively, just given some of the narrative we've seen from the environmental groups about the improvement to environmental conditions because of the shutdown. One thing that it's going to be important to remind people is cattle production didn't shut down during this during this crisis. So they realized all those benefits because there were less cars on the road and things like that. Uh, we, we never have been the problem. We're not the problem and we're not going to be the problem. In fact, we're a solution um, and we need to make sure people understand that. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, talk about climate uh, legislation and, and mitigating the impact of climate and the role that farmers can play in that. And, and we've not heard as much, although we did see uh, just last week, uh, Stabenow and some other bipartisan members uh, with a lot of ag groups supporting that could help uh, monetize some of that carbonization that we study at the farm level. Um, so definitely some things are starting to move there. We were not in support of that bill, although we're not at the point of opposing it either. It was a little bit too much, uh, too heavy handed on government control of that program for our taste, although we do think it's an important conversation to have. That carbon credit trading and, and mitigation credits in general have been an issue that, that I think we've struggled with, and not just us, but, but energy production as well, for years now. Uh, and the problem has always been, how do you do that in a way that, that there's not a need to drive demand for those credits through regulation? How do you make people want to engage in those markets without mandating through government government regulation that they must engage? And I, I don't know that we've necessarily cracked that nut quite yet, but it's a conversation we're certainly staying engaged in because it, it's, a, uh, it's not going away anytime soon. Speaking with Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Relations at NCBA. Uh, Ethan, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks to Feedstuff's policy editor, Jackie Fatka, for an important discussion of the policy problems posed by this pandemic-fueled economic crisis. You can read Jackie's coverage of the latest on COVID-19 and related farm policy issues in the pages of Feedstuff's and by subscribing to the Feedstuff's daily e-newsletter. She'll have more with Ethan Lane in our special Beef Priorities Report, which we'll mail with our July issue. Keep your eyes peeled for that special edition. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuff's In Focus. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Google. Or you can check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.